right, you can be seated. If you have a Bible, meet me in Exodus chapter 1. We're kicking off a brand new series, uh, an old series. I shouldn't say a brand new series. Exodus has been around for a long time. But uh, we are going to dive straight in. If I was going to give you a reason as to why, if you were going to ask me, why study the book of Exodus, why study this ancient piece of literature, I would say this, my primary answer among many would be that we need to know God better. Would you agree with that? We need to know God better. The psalmist reminds us of this as he was looking back on the Exodus in Psalm chapter 66. Here's what it says in verse 5 to 7 of Psalm 66. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land and they crossed the river on foot. And we'll look at that in coming weeks. But listen to this. There we rejoiced in Him. We just sang, I raise a hallelujah. Why? Because His acts for humanity, for you and for me, are awe-inspiring. He rules forever by his might. He keeps his eye on the nations. The rebellious should not exalt themselves. We need to know this God better. Psalm 66 is the echo of Exodus 34, 6. When we move to the book that we'll be studying, here's what Exodus 34, 6 says. The Lord. The Lord is compassionate, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Aren't you glad that he is a God that is slow to anger and always abounding in faithful love and truth? Aren't you glad for that today? I know I am. And that would be enough of a reason to study this book, right? That would be enough of a reason to look back on our spiritual ancestors and ask the questions, who is this God? And learn of his character. But I've got three more for you. So if you're taking notes, uh, number one was we need to know God better. But I want to give you a couple more. Number two, we need to understand redemption better. If, I, if you were to ask me, what is the Father's heart? What is God's heart? redemption would be my answer the father heart of god we need to know god better we need to understand redemption better what is his plan number three we need to understand god's mission better so easy to get stuck on our mission where we're headed whether it be as a body or whether it be as an individual it's so easy to be stuck down here with our vision down, right? And God, as we talk about here, calls us to move our vision up. Because when we go up, then we can look out, right? As we look to Him, as Hebrews says, and we fix our eyes there, He inevitably comes in and begins to transform us into His image. And then we're ready to look with Him, at our city, at our world. And so we need to know God better, redemption better. We need to understand 
his mission better? And then we can kind of come in and ask this question. We need to understand living by faith better. And so those four things are going to guide us over the next few weeks as we lead into uh, our celebration of Easter. And Exodus itself is a word that means going out. It's a, that's why we call it the Exodus. It's an event. It means going out. And, and it is the story of God rescuing his people, delivering them out from slavery and oppression under the hand of Pharaoh. If you've been around church for any length of time, it's probably a story you've heard. Whether like me, it was on a flannel graph in Sunday school back in the day. Amen. Anybody? Anybody? Just me. Okay. All right. Some of you just don't want to admit it, right? But flannel graphs are where it's at. I could go farther with that, but I'm not going to. But as you think about it, if you've read Exodus, it's a captivating story. It's a captivating story to see where God moves among his people. But it's also a challenging story. There's some things in Exodus that will challenge us about the character of God. That in rescuing his people, there are other people that are not rescued. (laughs) And we'll cover some of that. But even though it's a captivating story, it's probably not a story that you think about daily. You know, the redemption of God, the move of God in history is probably not what you think about daily. And I want to make a case that maybe we should. So even if you are old enough to hum the Bangles tune from 1986, Walk Like an Egyptian, some of you are going to understand that. I can report to you with confidence that Egypt did not adopt that as a theme song. But Egypt in the time of the Exodus in the Old Testament was a superpower. It was a political superpower. They were in control. And so when you look back at them, they were the most powerful nation of the time. Dynasty after dynasty after dynasty. Powerful nation. I mean, even today, one of the seven wonders of the world that still stands, the Egyptian pyramids, you can go there and look at King Tut's stuff. And marvel, and marvel at what they were able as human beings to accomplish. It was impressive. And yet, don't you know that today, Egypt is no longer that superpower, right? Egypt, as a dynasty, did not stand the test of time. As does no dynasty made by human hands, right? We could go down the list through history and look at all of the different dynasties, superpowers that seemed so powerful. And yet, what does scripture say? The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He is accomplishing because even though Egypt is not a political superpower and Egypt did not stand the test of time, our God... The God of the Exodus did stand the test of the time. It is his word that has stood the test of time and prevailed. And so he is the undisputed king of kings and lord of lords. Amen. Be a good spot for that. With all of that in mind, it's worth our close attention. 
Exodus, the story of the Exodus, is worth our time leading up to our celebration of Jesus at Easter. No doubt you are either in or have been in your own wilderness journey. Some of you I know are in it. Some of you I know have just walked out of it. And undoubtedly, some of us are about to walk into it. We all can identify with that. Crying out to the Lord, asking him to move and being surprised in the ways that he does. So with all that in mind, it brings us to the finish line of Genesis, the life of Joseph and bridges into the starting line of Exodus, right? And so we have to go there. We have to go back to the end of Genesis and look at the end of Joseph's life. So Joseph was uh, another guy in Scripture that we're not going to spend a ton of time on now, but it might be worth your looking into what he had just walked through because it was a lot. And so as we come to the end of his life and the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, here, here's where we pick up the story of the Exodus. Look at verse, um, let's start in verse 22. It says this, Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. There was a famine. They moved there. There's a whole story about Joseph and his brothers, coat of many colors. Good stuff. Be a good place for you to read. But they're there in Egypt, and Joseph lived for 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation, the sons of Manasseh, Makur, were recognized by Joseph. Now look at verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. So Joseph had risen to power, and God's people, Israel, had experienced a ton of favor in a land that was not theirs. So are you tracking with me that uh, because of famine, God raised up Joseph to deliver his people out of famine in a foreign land? So you have God's people in Egypt, a foreign land, and Joseph, the one who had brought that favor, is about to die. And here's what he says, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's always worth paying attention in Scripture when God gives a promise. When God gives a promise. And so Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. And Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. And that is the close of Genesis. But from the close of Genesis, we step right into the story of the Exodus. And it's important for you to know that Joseph has passed away. Because of where we land here. And so go to Exodus chapter 1 and look at starting in verse 6 with me. So verse 6 says, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. And so you see the shifting of atmosphere for Israel inside of Egypt. And here's where it goes. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly multiplied and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. This nation within a nation is multiplying and growing. Verse 8, a new king, that's important, who did not know Joseph, who did not know about Joseph, 
came to power in Egypt. More on him in a second. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And they worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly opposed, imposed all this work on them. What we see here is a nation of people who are foreigners in another land. What we see is God's people moving from this foreign place where they have experienced promise and blessing. And now they have rapidly moved because of political situation into problems and pain. That's a very important aspect of the story as we step into this story of Exodus and what God's going to do. And frankly, it's a prophetic word for the church, for us, for the body of Christ in the United States of America. Because no political superpower lasts forever. Are you aware? Right? And so the body of Christ, and I don't lean in here very often, actually in about four years, maybe once or twice. But it is appropriate as we assess what God is doing in the turn from Genesis to Exodus in the land that his people are in. What is he requiring? What is he looking for of them? Where is he moving in the midst of that climate? Frankly, Christendom in America was maybe a hundred year experiment. And it's rapidly deteriorating, if you haven't noticed. It's rapidly deteriorating. And as we look towards an election, which I'm not going to tell you to vote for, so don't get too nervous. All right. But as we look towards an election this next year, and as you listen to the rhetoric, and as you listen to everything on the news, and as you listen to and read, and all of these things that we're all going to do over this next few months, we must be guided by God. Amen? We have to be. We're people of the book. We're people of God who are not fully at home in this culture. And we must know that. So look at what's happening here in Exodus 1. In the historical background, we learn some things about this Pharaoh. We learn that this Pharaoh is actually celebrated. He is an important Pharaoh because Joseph in Genesis comes to power during what's known as the Hyksos regime. The Hyksos regime. And foreigners had come in and conquered Egypt and set up their superpower politically. And then Joseph was moved in. So God was 
working behind the scenes here to bring Joseph in and to a place of prominence to deliver his people from the famine. But foreigners had conquered Egypt. And it was the expulsion of that Pharaoh by this one or one in his family by Amos, the founder of the 18th dynasty. I'm not going to give you too many details, so don't get, don't get lost in that. But basically, what had happened is a pure Egyptian had come and built an army and had overtaken the foreign government that had been set up, that dynasty. And he had made Egypt what it was supposed to be. And so when this pure and legitimate Pharaoh sees the rise of Israel as a nation, he begins to spread fear to his people. He begins to use his own inflammatory language and policy to get his people turned against the Israelites. And that's an important part of the deal because when you look at all of the things that are going on here, it's important for us to know that even in our own land, how do you get elected? By presenting a problem and convincing people that the problem is real. And it's on both sides of our aisles in our own culture. And this, so this is not a political sermon, but I do want us to understand that for thousands of years, literally thousands of years, if you were to look even at this Pharaoh's second part of his statement here about the people of Israel, um, it plays on this universal xenophobic tendency to fear losing our jobs, losing our wealth, losing our land, and to control the people that come into it. It's not an accident that virtually every major modern society and every modern country has immigration laws with numerical restrictions on how many foreigners are allowed in. It's been happening for thousands of years. Even our own country requires our president to be born in our country. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. But I'm saying we have to step outside of the issues of our day and look at it with the eyes of Christ. Nations throughout history have been afraid to lose their power to outsiders. It's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. And here we have a Pharaoh sounding this alarmist note because they had just taken back their land. And it's calculated to gain approval from his people. And as we're about to see for his policies, right? Let's deal shrewdly with the Egypt, with the Israelites. Let's oppress them. And so he portrays his own people as being in danger and becoming a minority as a clever way to enforce the violation of human rights. Now, keep following me, because in verse 14, we miss a key detail in English that's present in Hebrew. And it's really important. The word for work and labor in verse 14, this idea that they're going to force them to work and serve and labor has a broader meaning. Moses will later in Exodus, for the duration of Exodus, will frequently use the same word, the same Hebrew word that Pharaoh uses for work and labor here. 
for Israel's desire to worship and serve Yahweh. It's the same word. So at this point, Israel is in slavery and being forced to serve Pharaoh. What Israel needed was not independence from Pharaoh in Egypt. That's not what they needed. What they needed was a shift of dependency. A shift of masters from Pharaoh to Yahweh. That's what they needed. And so as we move into Exodus together, a very real goal for you and I here is that as Jesus followers, living in a foreign land, we would shift our dependency from the powers that be here to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that was in very much control in Exodus and is very much in control here. Only King Jesus can righteously and perfectly oversee the affairs of the world. And we need to believe that. We need not be fearful of those in power. We need not be fearful of who might rise to power. We need not respond to alarmist speech or fear of losing tax exemption as a church body or anything else. We need not fear those things. No, our God does call us to submit to the government in whatever ways possible. That's Romans. We're called to be peacemakers. However, we're also called to speak truth to power. We're also called to that moment. And we could go through the whole scripture, whether it be Esther or we could go on. Deborah. Many, many people. Because it's not okay to murder innocent people, right? It's not okay to oppress any people group. If we move into our own culture, it's not okay to murder millions of innocent babies just because we've decided to call them a fetus. It's not okay. Scientific or not, they're living. They're living. And so we're not okay with that. But we're also not okay with other things because we also know that all people matter from the womb to the tomb. So we know that women matter. We know that people of color matter. We know that LGBTQ matters. And listen to me. We don't have to affirm a lifestyle to love a person. We care for everyone. There's things in my life, there's things in your life that should not be celebrated. There are sins that you committed this week, that I committed this week, that ought not be celebrated. And so it's not that we're affirming, celebrating a lifestyle. But we are saying that we love all people and everybody is welcome to worship our God. And that He is big enough to sort out our problems, right? Because what is sanctification? Is it me getting better or is it me becoming more aware of my need for Jesus and then him making me better? That's what sanctification is. And so we believe in the sanctity of 
all life, womb to tomb, picking and choosing who gets to live and who gets to have what, is not our business. It's evil, actually. That's what Pharaoh does. That's not what our God does. And yet there's grace, right? I don't know what your story is, but perhaps you've been a part of some of those things I just talked about. Whether it be from abortion to lifestyle choices to wherever you find yourself. And I want you to know that as Jamie read for us earlier, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so no matter where you are, we're about to get to know next week a guy named Moses. And when we meet him, we meet him murdering people. And he will be the very guy that God handpicks and says, you're the guy to lead my people into freedom. And he goes, hold up, that's not, that's not possible. <laughs> I can't talk right, killed a couple guys. That's why I ran away from Egypt. And God said, no, 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 you are my guy. So wherever you are, I want you to know that this isn't about choosing sides. It's not a political sermon. But it is a reality check that God's people, the body of Christ, are not fully at home in this world, in this culture. All of us have pockets of our lives that have succumbed to the world. I have them. And you have them. Satan is prowling. And there will always be opposition to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness. And so with all that going on, where's God? Where's God moving here? And I want to fast forward quickly to the end of Exodus chapter 2 and then we'll come back briefly before we take communion together. But look at the end of Exodus chapter 2 verse 23. Where's God in this? If we were to fast forward, is, is God moving here? Is God paying attention to what his people are going through? Here's what he says in verse 23. After a long time. How many of you know that God's timing is not always your timing? Yeah, I should have got a lot more amens. You all laugh. That's, I'll, I'll take it. After a long time. Man, we could sit there, couldn't we? The things that you've asked God for, the things that you've prayed for, the things that you've lost, or the hurt and pain that you've experienced, all of those things that we don't understand because His ways are higher than our ways, that's what's in view here. (laughs) After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. And here it is. What's the path to freedom? Maybe you're here today and you need a path to freedom. Here it is. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended where? To God. And how about this answer? And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and I love this phrase, and God knew. Some of you are walking through pain today, and I just want you to know that God knows. 
What a powerful thing. What a powerful thing. God knew whatever you're facing. God knows. God loves you. And Romans tells us that if you're his child, he's working all things together for your spiritual good. That there's purpose in your pain. That's one of the things that separates the God of the Bible from every other religion in the world. That there, he brings purpose to the pain that you are experiencing. And I say that because it's in the middle of horrific oppression that the Israelites are crying out to God. It's in the middle of that horrific circumstance that God is working. And you might say, well, how was he working? While all of that's going on, how was he working? Go back to the beginning of Exodus chapter 2 and look at verse 1 through 10. And let's see exactly how God's working here. Here's what's going on during those years that they're being oppressed. Now, a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. All kinds of stuff we could talk about there, but just get a good study Bible. ESV study Bible, my recommendation. Can't go wrong. Get on that. All right. But here he goes. I think you can even get it for free online. So go for it. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, now come on moms, how many of you know that was mom saying that right there, right? We don't know if that was true, but mom knew it was. But when she could, and uh, so she hid him for three months. Now remember, all babies in this story are supposed to be dying, right? And so we skipped over a few details, but the king of Egypt is going to come to the people of Israel and tell the midwives that all the babies should be murdered. Go back to Exodus chapter 1 verse 15. Let's look at that real quick just for context. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shipra and the second whose name was Pua. I don't know if we got a lot of pregnant ladies. If you need some names, uh, those would be good choices. All right. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, Kill him. Kill him. Wow. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, check this out, feared God and did not ask the, as the king, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? Don't you love this answer? The midwife said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get there. <laughs> those, those Hebrew women, I don't know. Now, here's an ethical problem, right? That wasn't true. They chose to allow those boys to live. And then they told the powers that be, I don't know, it's your problem. <laughs> we didn't do anything. And look at, look at God's response. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded of, of all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. It's a complicated situation. Politically, spiritually, 
ethically. There's a lot going on here. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad God's ways are higher than my ways. But what the midwives did know is here was an instance where heroic resistance to power was good. And they did the best with what they had. And it's in that context that this Levite woman gives birth to her beautiful baby boy, right? In chapter 2. And verse 3 of chapter 2 says, when she could no longer hide him because he was supposed to die, when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it in the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Can you just put yourself in those shoes? You take your baby boy and put him in a basket and put him in the Nile River. Incredible amounts of problems that could arise. But look at this. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child, and there he was, a little boy, crying. Are you getting the picture here? She felt sorry for him. How many of you know that was a move of God? What was supposed to happen when she found that baby boy in a basket in the river? What was the command? Dump the basket. Dump the basket. But God was moving because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. God's moving here and she has compassion on this boy. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Verse 7, then his sister, Moses' sister, comes up to Pharaoh and says, should I go call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? (laughs) Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called for the boy's mother, her mother, Moses' mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me and I will pay your wages. Now I'm going to pay you to take care of your son who was supposed to die. How many of you know God can do what he wants? So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. What a powerful story. Moses, though, in the next verses, is going to make some critical errors. He's going to see the oppression that's happening to his people. And he's going to take matters into his own hands. And he's not going to leave them in God's hands. And the scripture tells us, and we don't have time to go there today, but tells us that he goes and he kills two Egyptian taskmasters because of their oppression of his people. And then he runs away. He runs away from the destiny that God had for him. It's crazy. All that time that God's people were being oppressed, he was raising up a deliverer. But that deliverer was very, very far from perfect. And that's exactly what God needed us to know. 
because we live in this world. And there are things that he has called us to do in the midst of our culture. So you're here for a reason. God's put you in the place that you are to be salt and light in your world. But don't get confused with your calling and the saving, right? We are in the world to point people to the real deliverer, right? Moses is in scripture to point us forward to the one that was to come, right? Because if Moses had just done this right and had rolled in and saved Israel, Who's going to get the credit for that? You and I would sit here and go, man, we need to be more like Moses. No, you shouldn't. (laughs) You should not murder some people because they're bad. We're all bad. And that's what's happening here. That's what's happening. And so we're, we're moving from the promise that was given from Joseph to the problem for the nation to then the person that God's raising up. And we need to notice that God doesn't use Pharaoh in this story, full of wisdom and power. That would be a king who would take God's glory. He raises up a baby in miraculous circumstances to deliver his people. Does that sound like the foreshadowing of another baby born in miraculous circumstances who was supposed to die because the guy in power said all the babies should die. You're seeing the picture here that Moses is just pointing us to a greater deliverer whose name was Jesus. Moses was a very imperfect man. And yet God next week is going to use, begin to use Moses to deliver his people. And so I think we walk away from this today as an overview, just thinking about these things with two lessons. And I want you to write these down. Two lessons. Number one, God uses insignificant sinners for significant work. God uses insignificant sinners like you and like me to do significant work. One of my favorite illustrations of that is you can just get on Google Earth or Google Maps and just start zooming out. And really, really quickly, you can realize that you do not matter. Whatever you're struggling with right now, somebody in Africa doesn't care. Somebody in Cambodia doesn't even know you exist. Heck, somebody in town and country doesn't even know you exist. But you know what's amazing? The God who hung the stars not only knows that you exist, but he cares what you're going through. That's amazing. That the almighty (laughs) king of kings, lord of lords would look at you and me and love us in spite of us is an amazing thing. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. I think that's going to be on the screen for us. Let me, let me read that for you. It says this, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. <laughs> Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world. Anybody feel like that sometimes? 
God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. If you take a stand for Christ in this climate, you will be despised in this world, and I want you to know that. No matter what your up and to the right trajectory is, no matter what you're capable of, there will come a a moment where you must plant your flag and say, I I am a son or daughter of the Most High God. And there'll come a crisis point for you. But God chose what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. This is Moses. This is you. Why? Why? so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God uses insignificant sinners for significant work. As you look up to Jesus for salvation, he's going to move in like he will for Moses next week and say, you're the right man or woman for the job and it's going to look impossible and it should. And it should. (laughs) Whatever God's called you to do, wherever he's stepped in, And as I think about that, I just, I can't help, like, what about Jesus when he was on this earth? Like, what did that look like for him? And I think in Matthew chapter 11, we're given this perfect model for missions, right? What does it mean to look with Jesus at our city? What what does it look like? Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 through 6, at this model for mission for us. Here's what it says. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in prison, He heard now, or sorry, preach in their towns. Now when John, John the Baptist, heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus, are you the real deal? Are you the Messiah? And I want you to notice what Jesus answers. Jesus didn't say, I am, worship me. Notice what he says. Notice what he says. Verse 4, Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. Don't just give him lip service. Go tell him what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear The dead are raised, and here's this, the poor are told the good news. And how about this statement? Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. There's a word for us. Would Jesus offend us today because of the ministry that he chose to do? Maybe. It's cause for us to think, what is the model for missions? How do you look with Jesus at a city? 
It looks a lot like drawing near to the broken. Looks a lot like celebrating the good amongst all the reports of bad. Recognizing that there's good. And it also means participating in the future. What is Jesus doing in our city? And how do we join in in it? God uses insignificant sinners for significant work. And then there's Moses. So number two, what's the second lesson? I already let the cat out of the bag, but Moses points us to the greater deliverer and more perfect redemption in Jesus Christ. And before we grab those communion elements, I want to show you from the New Testament, what was the New Testament's perspective on Moses? Hebrews chapter 3 Verse 1 through 3 says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We confess Christ unashamedly, out on the front foot. We confess Christ. Verse 2, He was faithful to the one who appointed Him. Just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses. Just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful. Check this out. Moses... You and I, faithful as a servant in all God's household. Why? As a testimony to what would be said in the future. What a powerful vision for your life. Moses was just as messed up as you are. Moses was just as messed up as I am. Maybe worse. I haven't killed anybody. But if you follow Matthew chapter 5, maybe I have. (laughs) Right? Sermon on the Mount says, if you even hate somebody, you're guilty of murder. We're all in the same boat. We're all on the same playing field. But where we find hope is that God used Moses for a temporary deliverance of his people. And then God sent Jesus to set us free for eternity. This world is not your home. Scripture calls us strangers and aliens in this world. But you are here. And God wants to use you. God wants to use you in this world. But we must not get confused about where God's using us and where our flesh finds us.